0: If you were not here last week, we started a, a mini-series, a break from Mark from last week and this week, taking a break from our study of Mark, and we're looking at the topic of elders, and that's because my, my hope um, is that sometime during this year, the year 2020, we start to work towards establishing elders within the church. Um, this is something we're going to do together. It's not something that, that we as a leadership team are going to be doing alone Um, But we're going to be doing this together, so it's important that we take time to hear what the Bible has to say about the office and the position, the role of an elder in the life of a church. Um, After this morning, we'll kind of take a break from that, and then sometime after Easter, we'll uh, revisit the subject again, um, either through another mini-series of sermons. I'm not sure if we'll do that again or not, but there's going to come a point where we sit down and have a conversation, a, a meeting about this. Um, Because one of the things that we'll have to do before we even begin to talk about who is an elder, which is the title of this morning's sermon, is adapt our bylaws and talk about kind of specifics about how elders would work in the church. Um, But we want to do that together. Um, But so this morning, we're going to kind of pick up where we left off last week. If you remember last week, we we looked at what an elder does. An elder is a shepherd. Um, An elder cares for the spiritual life and life of the church and life of the members of the church. And we also saw in Titus chapter one, the three principles that Paul laid out when establishing elders. The principle of local within the church, elders within the body of believers. Um, the principle of plural, but then the principle of being qualified. Elders need to be qualified. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. What are the qualifications of an elder? And we'll turn from Titus to first Timothy chapter three, verses one through seven. 1-7. through Follow along in your Bibles if you would as I read. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Let's pause again to pray. Father, we ask for your help, Spirit. We ask for you to intercede here this morning, to open our eyes, to see what you have kept for us in your word. Father, lead us individually as we look at this, but lead us together as we hear Well, last week, if you remember in Titus, we saw how Paul had left Titus behind in the island of Crete, or on the island of Crete, and he left behind to put into order that which was unfinished. And part of that putting into order uh, was the establishing of elders. Well, this week we have Paul writing to yet another one of his pastoral interns, as it were, um, his pastoral disciples, the, the one he refers to as his son, Timothy, And again, he has left him behind for another church to bring order out of disorder. The church that he left him behind at was Ephesus. Now, when we say Ephesus, you may remember that last week we talked about Ephesus, and we talked in particular about the elders at Ephesus when we looked at Acts 21, where Paul, thinking it was probably going to be the last time he saw these leaders, these elders, he warned them and he said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. "...in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers." And just to stop, we saw last week in Titus the word overseers and the word elders were kind of used interchangeably. Um, So when we see overseers here and we see overseers in 1 Timothy chapter 3, um, that is part of, or at least uh, that's defining an elder. Um, Back to Acts 20. "...in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church, which he obtained with his own blood." And then he says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, elders, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And Paul's warning to the Ephesian elders, we find out, was not without warrant. It was not unfounded. Perhaps as he said this, he even saw the inklings of why he was giving this warning. Because as we turn to First Timothy, as we turn to the, the one that Paul has left behind in Ephesus, we see what has happened in Ephesus. At some point in the future, Paul and Timothy return to Ephesus and their visit at that point was not a pleasant one. And it's there that Paul leaves Timothy behind and he writes a letter in verse three through seven of chapter one, we see what has taken place within the church in Ephesus. He he says, as I urged you, Timothy, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and to endless genealogy. So this is taking place within the leadership and within the elders of the church which promotes speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law, but yet they're without understanding either what they are saying with what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Jumping down just a few verses, he mentions two of these men. Some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may may learn not to blaspheme. So this is the context that Paul is writing to Timothy in. This is the context of the church of Ephesus. How will he do this? How will how he put into place? How will we restore order to the church in Ephesus? With false teachers abounding within the church. With men among the elders who have made a shipwreck of their faith and led others astray in the process. You might think the way that Paul w- would address this is say, well, Timothy, let's just be done with the elders. Let's set up an autocracy with, with one leader. Let's just be done with this plurality of leaders It leads to all kinds of trouble. You are my mentor, disciple. Let's just put you in charge Timothy. But he doesn't do that. Instead, we find him saying in the very first verse that we read, he says, this saying is trustworthy. This is still a trustworthy saying, Timothy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. This is still a trustworthy saying, despite what we saw in chapter one of of those with wrong desires, it is still a good desire to aspire to the office and the task of an overseer. But it's a noble task, which literally means it's a beautiful task. And therefore, it requires beautiful or noble, it requires noble qualifications. Well, what are these qualifications? Paul lists in verses 2 through 7, 15 or are 14 or 15 of these qualifications. And we're going to try to work through most of them this morning, some more than others. But before we do that, we might take notice just as we heard them read or just as we see them in our our Bibles, we might notice first of just how ordinary these descriptions, these qualifications are. As we think about the qualifications of a church leader, we might agree with D.A. Carson, who has said that these qualifications are remarkable for just how unremarkable they are. He writes, the criteria mentioned here are demanded of all Christians everywhere. Which is another way of saying elders are first of all to be exemplars, be examples of the Christian graces that are presupposed as mandated on all Christians. What you find described of the elders is described other places in the New Testament as what all Christians are called to be. In the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. And then he says this, consider the outcome of their way of life Imitate their faith. The leaders who spoke the word of God, which we saw last week, was one of the main jobs of the elders. Those who spoke the word of God are those also who live out the word of God, and call us to live as well. David Platt, in his commentary on these verses in First Timothy, writes something that I don't necessarily like to to write, especially um, without. The other member of our, our pastoral leadership team because I recognize I'm the only one in this unique position, which is why we need a plurality of elders, the only one here. But here's what David Platt says, summing up verses the verses that we read in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He says, Here is the bottom line when talking about elders. What will happen if the church imitates this leader? What will happen if the church imitates this? The question we ask as we look to establish elders, what's going to happen if we follow their example? Mark Dever in his book, The Deliberate Church, writes this, what, your, what will your church be known for in the community 10 years from now? The answer, in large part, lies in the character modeled by the elders. Churches rarely grow past the maturity of their leaders. So when we think of elders, what we need to be thinking of first and foremost is character. What is the character of an elder? And that's what the Bible speaks most often about when it speaks of elders, their character. But it's also why when we talk about elders and we talk about the qualifications of elders, we also see again that this is what every Christian is called to. As we work through these qualifications this morning, not only do I want you to think about who are the elders that meet these qualifications, but I also want you to ask yourself, do I meet these qualifications? Am I growing in these areas of godly character? Tim Chalice has, has written a little booklet on these characteristics. These found in Timothy, also in Titus and First Peter. And it's a booklet called The Character of the Christian. Tim Chalice is a Christian author and a Christian blogger. And I stumbled across the blog based off of this book a few years ago. And I found it very helpful for my own personal spiritual life. And what I found helpful is and each of these chapters, each chapter is devoted towards a different characteristic. And in each chapter, he explains the characteristic. Then he gives kind of reflection questions. But then he gives prayer points. And he gives ways to pray for this character to be revealed in your life. And this has been helpful for me in that every day I've tried to just pray through one of these characteristics. And I've purchased some of these booklets. They're back on the table. There's not enough for everyone, but... If we're low, I can order more. And these would be really helpful for your own personal spiritual life. And just as an example of, of what I found so helpful was on Friday, the the characteristic was from Titus, where in Titus the elder is supposed to be eager to see good, which again is something we're all called to do. We're to be eager to see good. And Chalice leads us to pray in this way. He says, I pray that I would take the light in whatever delights God. I pray that I would be, that I would willingly avoid whatever has an evil influence over me or those I care for. I want to be for good. And then he says this, I pray that I would not be known only for the evils I am against, but also for the goods that I am for. And this is just one example and often praying through these leads me to other ways to pray this over myself and to call myself to embody these characteristics. And again, these are not just characteristics for elders, but they are characteristics for everyone. All of us are called to these things that that Paul lays out for Timothy. So what are these qualifications? I said there's a lot, and I'm actually going to add two more that we might not think of as qualifications. And the first thing kind of goes against what I just said, because this is not something, the first two, are not something that everyone in the church is called to, and that is because the first thing when we are talking about an elder, elder, what I see in the Bible and what I see in here is that we are talking about a man. My understanding of what the Bible says about leadership within the church is that that is a role, role that God has called for men to fill. And I say my understanding, but I, I don't say simply mine alone, Larry's understanding as well. So our pastoral team here at at Living Hope, that is our understanding as far as who can be elders and who can be pastors. But even more than that, also our church network, AMAC, has that position as well. In fact, if we were going to go against that, if we were going to put um, allow the eldership to be open to both men and women, then we would have to leave AMAC because that's not how they interpret and understand Scripture. And this is not because we believe that that women are less capable in leadership roles than men or that men are somehow more spiritual or that women aren't important to the life and health of the church. That is far from the truth. But it's about the roles that God has established within the church. This week I heard someone compare it to the Trinity. He said, look at the Trinity where within the Godhead, each member of the Trinity is completely equal. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All fully God. All completely equal. But yet we see throughout Scripture that each fulfills a different role. A different role in creation. A different role in salvation. A different role even in heaven for eternity. And for those created in God's image, it's the same way. Men and women are completely equal. And both are vital to the health and the growth and the sustenance of the church. But we each play different roles. For the pastoral and shepherding role, the Bible, in my understanding, is clear that those roles are to be filled by men. And perhaps that's something we want to talk about as we move forward. You're welcome to come and talk to me about that. And let us look at the Scripture together. But for now, we'll move on. From that to the second thing that really isn't applied to everyone, and that is that this is something that should be a desire of an elder. Paul begins in First Timothy 3, verse 1, he says, This tra- saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. First thing that Paul says about elders, that it is a noble desire. It's a noble desire, but it's not a desire that all will have. But all who are placed as elders in the church should have that desire. But notice what Paul says is that the desire is not for the office, but for the task. Now that's an important separation. The office, the desire is not for the office, but it's for the task. The, the desire shouldn't be for the position of an elder to be elevated and recognized in the church, but the desire should be for the work of an elder, which is shepherding work. This is a noble desire, Paul says. Peter tells the elders in his address to them in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says, shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion. Nobody should compel you to do this, but you should do it willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. It should be a desire within those called to be elders within the church. So one of the questions that will be asked of prospective elders at the beginning of the process is, do you desire this? Do, do you want to do it? There should be a desire. Now, it might be a desire that has to take time and think. Hopefully it's a desire that has to take time, that they have to take time and think about it. If they respond, yes, then we might want to stop and think, okay, is this a desire for position or, or for the work? Because it's not a task that should be entered in too lightly. Hebrews 13 Verse 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. And then he says this, As those who will have to give an account. Let them give. do this with joy and not with groaning. So that would be of no advantage to you. Paul says that, or the author of Hebrew says that the church leaders, spiritual leaders of the church, will have to give an account for those who are under their care. Now, now this accounting is not at an annual review by the church members, though that might be appropriate. But this accounting is much greater than that, and it is given before the throne of God, where God will ask, "How did you care for my sheep?" An elder must not enter the role flippantly or without serious thought and prayer. But at the same time, it is a great privilege to be one who is entrusted with the care of God's church. And God will not only give you the desire for the task, but also the joy found in doing it. Now we move on to those things that I believe we are all called to as Christians, but elders, church leaders are called to be exemplary in this. We're going to kind of group some of them together and put different headings over different ones but the first thing that paul mentions there in verse two is that an elder must one of the first noble qualifications is that is that of his reputation an elder must be one who is above reproach now if you have the new king james the king james translation the word you have there is blameless now we've got to be careful and not confuse blameless with sinless Because if sinless was required, there would only be one elder, and he would be ruling from heaven, and that is Jesus. He is the great elder, the chief elder of the church, but he would be the only elder if elders were required to be sinless. But the word is blameless. And what that word blameless means is, is that there, there's nothing that you can point to in life to say that they are disqualified. They're above reproach. Alexander Strzok, great book if you want to look at what the Bible has to say about eldership, biblical eldership by Alexander Strzok, says this, to be above reproach means to be free from any offensive or disgraceful blight of character or conduct. When an elder is irreproachable, critics cannot discredit his Christian profession of faith to prove him unfit to lead others. He has a clean, moral, and spiritual reputation. This is how we find Job described in the opening verse of the book of Job. This was a man, and there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. Job was not perfect, but Job was a man who was known for being blameless. And it's that blamelessness that not only drew attention from his fellow man, but drew attention even of Satan. Elders should have a reputation of being blameless. As we work through this list, we'll see every area, and you might have noticed it as we read the verses, you'll see every area of life being addressed. The area of the home, the area of the private, personal, spiritual life, the area of the public life. And in each of those areas, we should be above reproach. We should seek, as all of us, to be above reproach. We should not be one way at church and another way at home. We shouldn't be one way as we're sitting in our chair having our morning devotions in a completely different way as we conduct our business affairs in the workplace. To be above reproach means that we should be consistent in every area of our life. We should be above reproach. The second thing that Paul addresses is the, the marriage. His marriage. Both in Timothy and Titus, the first characteristic is above reproach and the second is that of his marriage. I believe that's because if there was one area where a man is going to be tempted to be inconsistent and tempted to be not above reproach, it's going to be in his marriage and in the areas of sexuality. But Paul says that an elder must be the husband of one wife. Now what Paul actually says there, if we translate it literally, is that he must be a one-woman man. What Paul is saying here is not simply that a man should have a quantity of one wife. He's not arguing against polygamy. We have plenty of verses to argue against that. That's assumed for an elder. Neither is he saying that an elder, I believe, must be married. And, and I know that some read that at face value and say one well, an elder must be married. But, but think about the one writing and the one receiving. Paul was not married and I... And We don't believe Timothy was married, so neither of these men could be qualified to be an elder. So he's not saying an elder even must be married. But what he's referring to is not a question of quantity, but a question of quality. He's really calling for more than simply that an elder should be married. But he's saying that if an elder is married, which was the, which is the case for most men, male leaders in the church, they're usually married and have kids, not always, but most, And he's saying in their marriage, they must be one woman, one a one-woman man. They must be devoted to his wife. He must be like a story I've heard of Winston Churchill this week and his devotion to his beloved Clemmie. Churchill was once asked at a gathering. They were all asked this question, and Churchill was the last one to answer, and they asked him, he said, if you would be, could be one person, if you could. Sorry, if you could not be who you are, if you couldn't be Winston Churchill, who would you like to be? As the responses made their way to Churchill, Churchill stood up and he said, if I could not be me, and he looked down at his wife, he says, then the person I would most like to be would be Lady Churchill's second husband. An elder must be a man who is devoted to his wife he's not merely married to his wife but he's devoted to his wife he loves his wife the way that a husband is called to love his wife in passages like ephesians chapter 5 he must love his wife wholeheartedly he must not be a flirt he must not have eyes for other women an elder can't be a man who has a porn addiction on the side he must be a faithful and committed husband and this makes sense when we're thinking about the task of an elder because the, an elder is one who is called to care for the church. And who is the church? The church is the bride of Christ. And Paul is saying here, do not trust the bride of Christ to someone who is not caring for his bride. Husbands, you cannot be expected to be entrusted with the care of Christ's church if you are not caring for your wife in church you cannot entrust care of Christ's bride to someone who's not caring for their own our home lives matter An elders ministry begins at home we're going to jump down a few because I think it relates to this and to his family down in verses 4 and 5 verses 4 and 5 Paul addresses the issue of a of elders family and he says he must manage his own household well with all dignity keeping his children submissive for if anyone does not know how to manage his own household how will he care for god's church paul shows us the connection here and that is if someone cannot be entrusted if someone is not managing their own household why would you allow them to be those who manage the church the word paul uses in verse five is the word oikos Oikos. He uses the same word, and that's the word for household. He uses the same word in verse 15. Only in verse 15, the oikos he's referring to is the household of God. How an elder manages his family oikos tells us something about how he will manage God's oikos. If you, and that was where I was expecting my kids to just kind of go all chaotic in the middle of that point if you aspire to the office of an elder, your wife and your family are the proving grounds. We cannot look, you cannot look to be a leader of the church if you are a failure in your home. And let me just say it as a aside. One of the things that I've appreciated about this church is you have understood that. And you have allowed me to let my focus be on my family first and then the church. You have given me that freedom and you have called me to that responsibility over and over again. And I appreciate that from you. If you aspire to the office of an elder, your home life matters. And for all of us, our home life matters. We cannot look one way when we're out in public and another way when we're at home. From his family, we'll jump back up to where we left off in the list and go to his discipline. His discipline, going back to verse 2. Paul addresses three areas of an elder's self-discipline. He says that he must be sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. Sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. In the NIV, sober-minded is temperament or temperate, and it means not given to extremes in behavior, not given to extremes in behavior. Again, Alexander Strock says it is necessary. It is necessary for the elders who face many serious problems, pressures, and decisions to be mentally and emotionally stable. Tim Chalice in this book that I mentioned earlier says, The sober-minded man is clear-headed and watchful, free from excesses and wild fluctuations in thinking and ideas. This trait allows him to keep alert so he can protect himself, himself and others from any kind of spiritual danger. He is not rash but thoughtful. Again, this not only applies to elders, but it applies to all of us. We all want to be sober-minded. We all want to be level-headed is another word that we could use here. Level-headed, clear-minded. From the mind, the discipline goes to the actions, to our behavior. An elder is to be one who is self-controlled. And when we see that word self-controlled, we're reminded that an elder is to be first and foremost a man who is filled with and led by the Holy Spirit. Because we know that one of the fruits of the Spirit, one of the evidences of the Spirit in our lives is that we are self-controlled. So a self-controlled person, in terms of spiritual terms, is a God-controlled person. Someone who commit, who submits his self to the control and the leading of the Spirit. And when you put these two qualifications together, sober-minded, having to do with the thoughts, self-controlled, having to do with our actions, you arrive at respectable. And respectable refers to an, ordinary, an orderliness of life, as one commentator said, "Respectable describes a person whose orderly outward life, orderly actions, are a reflection of their inner stability. Sober-minded, self-controlled, bring about respectable." Thabiti An Wabili says this: "The ministry of the church, the ministry and the church are always being watched by people inside and outside. And the church's enemies continually look for opportunities to condemn it and to slander it. Churches are greatly helped to withstand this onslaught when its leaders are respectable in their conduct and are men of sound judgment. Must be respectable. But this is, again, not just because I'm trying to deflect your aim. This is something we are all called to be. We're all called to be respectable in our conduct. Next is his ministry. His ministry. And Paul addresses two areas of our ministry. And that is in the home and in the church. The first is in the home. And that is that an elder is to be hospitable. Elder is to be hospitable. The word hospitable means just frankly to... It was just up there. Disposed to treat guests and strangers with cordiality and generosity, or simply, as Kent Hughes says, a love of strangers. A love of strangers. Hospitable being hospitable is not just inviting your best friends over for dinner, that's great, but it's inviting those who you don't know so well over to dinner. And it's not just inviting people over when your house is all cleaned up and perfect, but it's inviting them sometimes into just the chaos of your life so you can share life with them. E. Stanley Jones was a missionary in the 20th century, and he tells this story of a time when he was shown ultimate hospitality. And it's when he was preaching in the mountains of Kentucky in a very poor area, and he was having uh, evangelistic meetings at the church, and Dr. Jones was invited to stay in the home of a man and his wife. And he uh, walked in, he followed them home, and he walked in the home, and he realized there was only one room and only one bed. The husband looked at him and it was time to go to bed. And the husband looked at him and said, you take the far side. So Jones says, I got in, followed by the man and then his wife. In the morning, we reversed the process. Dr. Jones says, I turned my face to the wall as they dressed and they stepped outside while I dressed. That was real hospitality. (laughs) He says, I have slept in palaces, but the hospitality of that one bed home is the most memorable and the most appreciated. 1 Peter 4.9 says we should show hospitality. And this is to everyone. We should show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Romans 12.13 says share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. And that word practice could actually be the word pursue. We should be pursuing hospitality. And think again about that definition. I won't put it back on the screen, but that definition of hospitality, disposed to treat guests and strangers with cordiality and generosity. What better way for us to live out the gospel? To live out what we have experienced through Jesus Christ. Jesus treated us, Romans says, who were not just strangers, but enemies. And He treated us not, not just cordially, but He treated us with great and incredible mercy, which He generously lavished on us, Ephesians 1 says. How can we not extend that hospitality to others? The second area of ministry that the, that Paul addresses, we won't cover much this morning because we looked at that last week, but an elder must be able or apt to teach. Now later on in 1st Timothy or in 2nd Timothy, I can't remember which, Paul says that among the team of elders, there are those who are more able and more gifted to teach and preach than others. Not every elder is called to be a preacher, but every elder should be able to communicate the gospel and communicate the scriptures in a way that makes sense. And they should be able to refute false teaching because it is through the right teaching of the word of God that the church of God and the people of God are built up for the glory of God. From his ministry to his temperance, his temperance, he's not To be a drunkard. We we know this. We could quickly move on. But we need to think about this and hear this. Drunkenness is a sin. Alcohol itself and drinking is not labeled as a sin. But drunkenness is a sin. In 1 Corinthians it says that drunkenness is among those things in which church discipline is to be practiced. And they are to be removed from the church if they continue in in this sin among others. So those who lead the church cannot have a drinking problem. The Bible repeatedly warns of the dangers of alcohol, particularly among those who are its, who are leaders. Proverbs 20 verse 1 says, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it, by it is not wise. We need our churches to be led by wisdom. Therefore those who lead it can't be led by alcohol. Proverbs 31, verse 4 says, It is not for the kings, O Lemuel. It is not for the kings to drink wine or for the rulers to take strong drink. He must not be a drunkard, Paul says. And then from his temperance to his temperament. And that is that he must not be violent. He must not be violent, but be gentle. Not quarrelsome. The word violent there means literally not a giver of blows. Or as the King James says, he can't be a striker. He can't be a striker. He can't be someone who lashes out either physically or verbally. Now, an elder, by definition or by job restriction, by job responsibilities, elders need to be strong. But elders cannot be bullies. Instead, he should display that strength in great gentleness. Second Timothy two twenty four through twenty five says this: The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. But be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now, Larry's not here for me to say this, but beside, I could, I, I'm not going to find it now, but in Proverbs, there's a verse that describes someone who is gentle and, and kind. And I have written in my Bible, and I read through Proverbs every, try to read through Proverbs every month, so I come across this. I've written besides that verse, Larry Crossgroves. And many of you will say that Larry is a kind and a gentle, Person, this must be the temperament of an elder. They must be gentle. They must not be a not be violent. Neither should they be quarrelsome. The word quarrelsome in the Greek is is the word amachos. We think of that and we think of machos. And God's macho men. I'm not going to do the. I'm not going to sing the 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 song for you. But God's macho men are, are different than the world's definition of a macho man. They're inclined or disposed to peace, whether in war or in personal relations. God's macho men are peaceful and peaceable, and those searching for peace, not conflict. His money. This is a hard sermon because there's so many different categories to go through. You know, I usually struggle with just three points. I've got way too many points this morning. It's kind of stressed me out this week. His money. Paul addresses an area where none of us really want to be addressed in, and that is our money. Os Guinness, a Christian theologian, humorously said of too many churches, he said, if a man is a, if a man is drunk on wine, you'll throw him out. But if he is drunk on money, you'll make him a deacon. <laughs> if the leadership of the church, in the leadership of the church, we need those who are wise with money, but we do not need those who love it. First Timothy six, 10 says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now you can have a lot of money and still not love it, or you can have no money and still have a hunger and a craving for it. The amount you have is not necessarily the determination of your love for it. But leaders in the church must not love money, have a love, a craving for money. Let's move on to his maturity. His maturity. There's two more that are left for, him, for us: from an elder's money to an elder's maturity. First Timothy three verse six says he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. King James again says he must he must not be a a, a novice. It takes time to learn the Scriptures. It takes time to develop spiritually just as it does does physically. And there's a temptation within many churches when someone is converted who is a natural leader, a gifted in leadership or speaking to immediately get them into a leadership position. Perhaps we're afraid we're going to lose them to another church and to another ministry. We want to keep them here so we're going to elevate them to a position very quickly. But when we do that, we are setting them up for failure and we're setting up the church for disaster. Notice the warning Paul gives. He says, if you do this, he may become puffed up with conceit. Puffed up literally means he may be filled with smoke. He may be full of hot air and conceit. And then he says he'll fall into the condemnation of the devil. We well, just think about what Satan's condemnation, what brought about his judgment, and that was his pride. He thought that he was greater than god and paul says when you elevate someone who is not ready for the position spiritually who is who is a recent convert you are setting them up for that same path a leader church leader must be marked by not pride but humility and humility takes time to divide. and lastly his reputation again we, we end where we begin an elder must be above reproach and Paul ends by saying he must have a good reputation. But notice, not just a good reputation within the church, not just within this one realm of his life, but he must have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's traps. He must not only be recognized as a man of character within the church, but also outside of it as well. In his prayer points on this. Tim Chalice says of this, and that's, That's small. But he says, I pray that I would be known by people outside the church, that I would be known by people outside the church and that they would respect me for my godly conduct and consistency of life. So he's implying that you not only need to have relationships in the church, but you need to have relationships outside of the church so they can even think well of you to begin with. We need to be developing relationships like Johnny mentioned where we can nudge people to Christ who do not yet know him. I pray that I would have a good reputation with neighbors, relatives, and colleagues. I pray that I would be submissive to the authorities of the church at work and in government. I pray that my name would be without blemish in my community. And I pray that I would be a model of good works at home, at work, and in my neighborhood. So that by doing good to others, God will be glorified. Is this your desire. Is this what you are working towards? I Maybe mean, not the end office and the position of elder, perhaps, but are you working towards it being said of you that you have a good reputation? And literally that wording is that you have a beautiful witness. Is your character a beautiful witness to the saving grace of Jesus? In summary, I simply go back to David Platt's words summing up these verses. I try to go back to it here is the bottom line what will happen if we follow these leaders As you think about elders in our church as you think about those we want to call to this position what will happen if we follow their example it's a question as we think about the church but it's also a question that we should look ask ourselves every morning as we look in the mirror am i someone who is worth following is my character such that I am a model for how a Christian is called to live? Of course, none of us can say that completely, and maybe you want to take away my position as pastor after hearing this. None of us are going to fill these completely, but we're all called to live these out and to pursue these things. Are we above reproach? Do you have a good reputation, a beautiful witness? M are you a one woman man or a one man woman? Are you managing your household well? What is your relationship like with money or with alcohol? Are you self-disciplined or are you out of control? What about your temperament? Are you spiritually mature or at least are you maturing? Are you growing? All of these apply not only to elders but to each of us. Are we a church of growing Christians? Let me close with these words from Ephesians chapter 5. And this is the great hope of the gospel. And after hearing all those things, we need to be reminded of the the good news of the gospel. And that is that though we fail in many of these character traits, our hope is not in ourselves, but our hope is in what Christ has done for us. Ephesians 5 says this, Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That is what Christ has done for us. But does that passage sound familiar? Do you recognize where that passage is? What is that passage about? That passage is about husbands and wives and and. Paul calls husbands to model that example. Model that example. This is the the part addressed to husbands. Do this as Christ has done for you. And I think we can say the same thing for church leaders. Love Christ's bride like he... Let's pray.